Well, happy New Year's to you. Feliz Año Nuevo. Oh, that got too quiet. Don't worry. We'll work on it. We will work. Well, you've got 365 days to work on this this next year. Well, I'm so glad to be with you this morning. If you do not know me or this is your first time visiting, I am Ricky Ruiz, and I am have the immense blessing of being the minister shepherding our Moberly and Espanol ministry. And so today, it, it's especially joyful um, because we have the congregation of Marily and Espanola who are joining us this morning. So if you see me switching a little bit, I am not speaking in tongues. I am just trying to balance things out a little bit. So Feliz Año Nuevo. Damos gracias a los de la congregación de Marily en Español. Tenemos aparatos de traducción en la parte de atrás. Por favor, no olviden agarrar uno. If you see somebody who may need a translation pack, please direct them to Guest Central and so that they are facilitated the message this morning. Well, a couple of months ago, uh, Pastor Andrew asked me uh, to deliver the message on the very first Sunday of 2023. I felt absolutely zero pressure. But I know that one of the first things that I immediately made up my mind about at that instant, just, just, just the thought just came into my head, and it was, I am not doing a christmas theme message. Because you hear them all the time. You hear them every year around the same time. People are probably sick of it. How much more can you squeeze out of it? Well, guess what we're doing this morning? Because... God just has a way of taking our plans and crumpling them up and showing us what he really wants to do. So I invite you this morning to go with me to the book of Matthew. And we're going to be looking at a story very well known, starting in verse 1. You know, when we look at the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, we get this incredible perspective from each evangelist writer. It's almost like looking at it as a, as a mosaic, each with its own perspectives. And, and, and when you look at them very detailed, you will see that each writer tends to emphasize on a specific attribute or characteristic of Jesus. For example, Matthew talks to us of Christ as being sovereign, as the one who came to reign and rule as king. It's why Matthew begins in chapter 1 with the lineage all the way to David, who is the one who fostered that royal line, which depicts Jesus as the ruler. If we look at Mark, he presents Christ as servant, coming to serve and to suffer. And we don't find a genealogy in the first chapters like the others because he's a servant. And a servant's lineage is irrelevant. We go look at Luke who presents him as son of man, who comes to share and sympathize. And in the first chapters, it gives us the genealogy all the way to Adam. Because Luke wants us to know that Jesus is a man directly from the first man. And when we look at John, we see him as son of God. That is why when we get to that first chapter, it starts with this amazing verse. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was 
God. Because John takes him back, goes back and establishes the eternal Christ. And when we look at the Gospels, each author's lens enriches the understanding of each narrative. So Matthew's lens is that of seeing him as the one who came to reign and rule as king. In fact, if if the Jews had been having kings by the time of Jesus' birth, Jesus would have been king by right. So chapter 1, when you look at Matthew, it wants you to understand that he has the right to rule the throne of David. It establishes that he is king in terms of lineage. And when we get to chapter 2, Matthew establishes that he is king in terms of the homage that he is given. And it starts by telling us about this encounter with the wise man that came to proclaim him as king. So let's start reading Matthew 2, chapter 1. And after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of King Herod, wise men from the east arrived in Jerusalem saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star at its rising and have come to worship him. And when King Herod heard this, he was deeply disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. So he assembled all the chief priests and scribes of the people and asked them where the Messiah would be born. In Bethlehem of Judea, they told him, because this is what was written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, because out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly summoned the wise men and asked them the exact time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. And when you find him, report back to me so that I can go and worship him. After hearing the king, they went on their way. And there it was, the star they had seen at its rising. It led them until it came and stopped above the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overwhelmed with joy. And entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, And falling to their knees, they worshipped him. And they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their own country by another route. And after they were gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Get up, take the child and his mother, flee to Egypt, and stay there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to kill him. So he got up took the child and his mother during the night, escaped to Egypt and stayed there until Herod's death so that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet might be fulfilled. Out of Egypt, I call my son. Let's pray. Father, we've heard the story maybe more times than we can remember. But I pray, Lord, that you give us fresh eyes, that you tune our ears, God, that it be your message not the intellect of a man. May your spirit flow like mighty waters. Touch, change, restore, transform, challenge us, and take us to a deeper understanding of your word and you. In your name we pray. Amen. If we keep reading into verse 16 through 18, it's ironic to me that this story is one of the most hopeful and also one of the most painful moments in the Bible. 
It's interesting that when, when this season, Christmas season comes around and we celebrate the Christ child, we rarely remember the fact that this occasion comes to us alongside one of the greatest injustices that we'll ever read about. And I want to address a little bit of that later on. But for now, when we come across this story, we, we fairly quickly come upon the temptation of seeking out information about this story that can bog us down and it can kind of steer us away from what the passage was meant to tell us. One of the things that can bog us down, and let me tell you, uh, this past week, um, after accepting that this is where the Lord wanted to take me, I can't tell you the number of hours and the research as I went through every few verses. I mean, at the end of it, probably over 10 pages of just things about so many stuff. And I had that head knowledge, that historical knowledge. But at the end of writing, I realized there really wasn't much that was stirred in my heart. Uh, there wasn't a, a spiritual revelation. And, and, and I realized there are things that sometimes bog us down with things that the scripture is really not even trying to tell us. Some of those things can be, and we come across it, is when was Jesus born? What was the exact time of his, of his birth? You know, we, we hear the quarrels about that one. It wasn't the 25th. It wasn't this. It wasn't that. Uh, the nature of the star, was it supernatural? Was it, was it a natural occurrence? Did it just appear? Did it, how did that happen? Uh, we talk about the, the timeline of the birth and, and the arrival of the wise men. Um, we just know that it happened after his birth. There's really no other details that tell us anything um, we have the issue of the words used and using our present understanding to define biblical meaning. You know, was, for example, one of the things that you come across is Mary Joseph and Jesus were at a stable and then a house, or was it just one place? And, and you can get so bugged down with information. Another big one is when we address the wise man's gifts. You're probably familiar with trying to find hidden meanings to, to what these things meant, gold, royalty, and, and frankincense, and priest, or prayers, and, and myrrh, which signified his, uh, his burial. Um, and we can get spend so much time trying to find hidden meanings. And my point is this. When you read the passage, when you read the word, when you really read it, things are uncovered. There's no hidden meaning in it. And so what do we have in the text and what is important about this story? I asked you, just, just look at it with some fresh eyes this morning. I believe the biggest things that we can find here come from the three main characters in this story. And I'm, I will address Herod, the wise man, and of course, God. So let's look at them in this text. Herod, it says in verse 1, now when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod, the king, I believe it's critical to understand Herod and who he is in order to understand how he responds. Herod is the king, and we assume sometimes that Herod, the king of the Jews, or even that Herod is Jewish. Herod was not a Jew. Herod was Edomian from the Hasmonean dynasty. 
But he rules in Israel, which is under Roman rule. And in other words, what this simply means is he was not liked at all by the Jewish people. He was in alliance with Rome. And it's important to remember this because when the wise men arrive to talk to the king, this is a king whose alliance is with the Romans, not the Jews. He's not liked by the Jews because he's not Jewish. He's an imposed foreigner over them. And so these wise men come to this guy who knows he's not liked. And the words out of their mouth is, where is the king of the Jews? We have come to worship him. And if you do not think that's terrible, it's because you don't know maybe a lot about the Herods. There wasn't just one. Herod was not so much a name as it was a family title. There was Herod the Great, who we see here. But there was also Herod Antipas, who was, in, in, he was the one who incarcerated and later beheaded John the Baptist. He's the one that we see at Jesus' trial when we hear the name Herod. That's not the same Herod. So if someone comes up to you and says, why is the Bible so inconsistent? It says Herod died, but then he's at the end of the trial. It's a different Herod, all right? We have Herod Philip. We have Herod Archelaus, who's the son of Herod the Great. We see him in Matthew 2, verse 22. We got Herod Agrippa I, who was the grandson. And we have Agrippa II, who was the great-grandson. So there's, there's a legacy of this family of rulers. And it's important that, that this helps us understand the actions of this man. Because this family legacy, it had elements of greatness that they had done. But any great acts were overshadowed by the egotism that controlled this family, the cruelty and the tyranny and the immorality that reigned from that throne. Now, if we put this into perspective, the perspective of the people who were waiting for their Messiah for hundreds and hundreds of years, they're thinking our land is ruled by Rome. No longer ours, despite our great history. We were freed from Egypt. We were given the law. We were given a mighty king. We were a mighty kingdom under David and then under Solomon. He built the most beautiful temple, the richest time of our kingdom. And then suddenly the kingdom is divided. The north is taken captive by the Assyrians because of Israel's idolatry. And then finally the south falls to Babylon, which is important later on. So Israel is never again the same after coming back from exile. Now the Romans are in charge. And to make it worse, there is a king, a tyrant over us who is not even from the line of David in fact, he's not even a Jew. And in this darkest of times, the Messiah arrives. The Messiah arrives in the middle of a reigning of a man who assassinated his wife, mother-in-law, brother-in-law, two of his sons, killed other relatives and rivals. And in fact, history tells us that Upon his deathbed, 
He told them to arrest and ring up nobles, probably people that the Jewish people probably liked better than him. And he told them, when I die, I want you to eliminate them as well because I know that nobody's going to mourn me and I want there to be mourning. That's just how terrible this man was. These were the men who exerted power and authority over the people of Israel. They were groaning, tired, and calling for the Messiah to come. Now, if we put this to maybe a more personal perspective, is there something in your life that maybe has made you feel this way? Is there something in your life that makes you feel as though God has forgotten his promises to you? That causes you to look out and say, if God was truly concerned about me, I wouldn't have gone through this. That's exactly how the people felt before the Savior was born. In fact, the question that was continually asked of Jesus later on during his ministry, people who understood who he was, was, Lord, when will your kingdom come? When will you crush this oppressive and evil empire. Because they believe God must not be. And we can easily believe God is not in control. Because if he were in control, this evil wouldn't be happening. And yet we see that God walked on this earth in the person of Jesus Christ. And still the wickedness of the Herods reigned. That's Herod. Let's look at the wise men. It says, wise men from the east arrived in Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star at its rising and have come to worship him. Let me start off by saying this. The purpose of the wise men was not simply to bring us gifts or so that they become the main characters in this picture. The reason for the wise men in this passage was to affirm Jesus' kingship and lordship. That's the purpose of them, to affirm the kingship and lordship. It tells us here that they arrived, they had traveled far. The text doesn't give us details about exactly where because it's not the important part of the story. But it does want us to know this, they came to worship. Verse 10 through 11 says, when they saw the stars, it says they were overwhelmed with joy. And entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and falling to their knees, they worshipped him. And it's important to take notice of the fact that every single time that mother and child are mentioned together, verse 11, 13, 14, 20, 21, it always mentions the child first. He wants to let us know that only God is worthy of worship alone. So we see through the, through the wise men, through their eyes, through their interaction, how they affirm Jesus' kingship and lordship. We see it, we see Jesus' lordship affirmed even through the parents. Because there is, a, if we observe, any Jewish parent who would have seen strangers arriving at their door and bowing before their child would have stopped it immediately. It was a blasphemy in the culture. 
And yet we see here that Mary does not stop him. He allows him, he tells him, he lets them worship, which means that Mary understood who that child was. And by that simple action, it affirms the Lord's, the Jesus' lordship. Now we see Jesus' kingship affirmed through the gifts. We know it well, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. We are not told in this passage of any symbolism, okay? But when we remember what Matthew was doing here and what he's trying to point at through the lens of this gospel, and when you remember the audience that he's writing to, other Jews, right? That he's the Messiah, this is the son of David, we have to realize that Matthew is actually pointing to familiar things for those people who knew the Old Testament, who knew the law. And I want to take you through this, this, little, this little trip together. If we go to 1 Kings chapter 10, verse 1 and 2, we, we encounter the queen of Sheba who visited the king at the time, the son of David, Solomon. And this is what it says. It says, the queen of Sheba heard about Solomon's fame and connected with the name of the Lord and came to test him with difficult questions. She came to Jerusalem with a very large entourage with camels bearing what? Spices, gold in great abundance, and precious stones. She brought what? Gold and spices. What did the wise men bring? Gold and spices. Because he is a king, like the King Solomon. Psalm 72, 11 says, May the kings of Tarshish and the coasts and the islands bring tribute. The kings of Sheba and Seba offer gifts. Let all kings bow in homage to him. All nations serve him. Verse 15, may he live long. Here it goes. May gold from Sheba be given to him. May prayer be offered for him continually. And may he be blessed all day long. Again, gold. The people knew these scriptures. Let me give you one more. Isaiah 60, 5 and 6. Then you will see and be radiant and your heart will tremble and rejoice because the riches of the sea will become yours and the wealth of the nations will come to you. Caravans of camels will cover your land. All of them will come from Sheba and they will carry what? Gold and frankincense and proclaim the praises of the Lord. We do not need to go deep and find a symbol for these items. If you know the word, you understand what Matthew is trying to say through this. There's no reason to go beyond what it says when all we got to do is read it. He says, what does it all tell us? Simply this, Jesus is king. And he was treated as a king through the gifts that were given to affirm what they already knew was the proper treatment of a king of Israel, frankincense, gold, and spices. And when David's son shows up in the form of Jesus, people come from afar and they bring gold and spices to worship him. So the wise men were used to affirm his lordship and his kingship. And let's look at the third person in this story, God. How do we see God's hand in all this, one of the ways is looking at the star. And I'm not going to go into details about what it could have been and what it could have not been. I don't think that's the point that this passage is trying 
to tell us. But I am drawn to this in verse 2 when they say, For we saw his star at its rising. It doesn't say they looked up one day and they saw something and all of a sudden were just surprised by it. But the fact that they saw its rising and they knew that it was his star. There was knowledge that allowed them to come to that conclusion that stirred their minds and their hearts and drew them on a long journey to find this king. And it made me question, where did this knowledge come from? How did they know? Well, I am reminded of the fact that there was a prophet who prophesied about the coming king who was carried off to the east centuries before. You'll remember Daniel. You remember King Nebuchadnezzar's dream where he was disturbed by a dream and he asked his wisest counsel not only to decipher what it was, but also for them to reveal him what the dream was in the first place. And it says that none of them could reveal it to him. And he even ordered them to be put to death. In the second chapter of Daniel, Daniel tells this to the king. He says, no wise man, there is, no wise man, no medium, no magician or diviner is able to make known to the king the mystery. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And God reveals this through Daniel. And it says in Daniel 2:48 these great words. It says that then the king promoted Daniel and gave him many gifts, generous gifts, and he made him ruler over the entire province of Babylon and chief governor over all the wise men of Babylon. Amen. We for a second and think and meditate upon this. Daniel, the chief over the Magi. And because of him, these wise men were spared their lives. And we know Daniel was not ashamed of God. He preferred to be sent to a den of lions than to stop opening those windows and praying publicly to him. So it is not beyond our thinking that he probably shared these prophecies and talked about God and talked about the coming Messiah to these men who passed this information on down the centuries. And then we see this. We see this maybe displayed. These men were waiting. And when they look up and they see, they remembered what Daniel had probably said to them. And when we see God at work through this, the fact that Israel was exiled, the fact that it was used so that hundreds of years later, wise men could come and affirm Lord's kingship. It is amazing to think about. And that makes us arrive to one of the main points, and it's simple but powerful. God is sovereign. God is sovereign. He's in control of history. What does this mean? It means that when they were suffering under Romans' rule, God was sovereign, and he's still sovereign today. And we tend to think about life, and maybe 
you go through life believing that, that things just happen because they happen. That, and sometimes God hits or sometimes he just misses. And if that's the case, why hope is there? If he isn't in control of everything, how can he keep his promises? Like the prophecies in Matthew chapter 2, we see three great prophecies completed. The prophecy of the birth in Bethlehem, the prophecy of the flight to Egypt, and the prophecy of the massacre of the innocents. And he, it wants us to know that he is sovereign. I will touch a little bit more on that. But second, he is worthy of worship. I'm gonna be, can I be honest? Can I be completely transparent in the years of ministry that the Lord has allowed me to be a part of? Um, I, I believe, seriously, that we have lost the art of worship in the church. I believe that we've lost the art of worship in our Western culture. There's one thing that I, I've heard so many times, and, 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 and I think every time I hear it, it bothers me even more. And it is that phrase, we are saved to serve. We are saved to serve. And that seems to be almost a mission goal. Hey, let's get that person saved. Hey, let's plug them into the church. Hey, and as soon as they do that, let's find them a job to do working for the Lord. I want to tell you something. I was not saved to serve. I was saved to worship. And my serving comes from the overflow of worship. And when we have this right, we can declare this, and this is our third one, and this is for you, and this is for me. We are saved to worship. I came across this quote this week. It says, we dishonor God by attempting to serve him without really knowing him. We dishonor God by attempting to serve him without really knowing him. And isn't that the heart of true worship? See, if we mistake our worship relative to what God does, then we can understand why we can run to church on Sundays and worship him right here when he answers our prayer and gives me the job that I asked for. Or when I am raised from a sick bed or one of my relatives. But that is also why come New Year's and come the following months, many of those same people don't come to church because they either lost that job Maybe lost a relative, maybe lost a family member. Because that worship did not come from a knowledge that God is sovereign even in the darkest moments of our lives. He was born as a savior. This is a great observation that I hope it, it, it ministers to you even more than it did to me. God doesn't need to earn our worship. And you know what is the amazing aspect of this story that draws me to my knees when I understand it is the fact that Jesus still hadn't even done any redemptive work here on the earth 
when this story happened. And yet, he was still worthy of worship. Because our worship for him is about who he is. And yes, we worship him too because of what he's done. But we see here that he hadn't even done the redemptive work yet, and he was still worthy of worship. Let me go back for just a second. Why is it important to understand God's sovereignty? Because if we understand God's sovereignty, it helps us get through verses 16 through 18. God protected his son while thousands of innocents were slaughtered. It's a hard read. I know it's a hard read. But oftentimes, the sovereignty of God does not mean that we will not face tragedy or trials or difficulties. That's not the meaning of the sovereignty of God. Oftentimes, we want God's justice. How could you, God? Let me ask you this. If justice had visited us last night, how many of us would be in this room right now? Because we've thought things, we've done things that are not deserving of mercy. And yet, cost of his mercy, we are allowed to live. So before we run out blaming God for maybe not exacting judgment, remember this. We didn't get what we really deserved. And second, nobody gets away with injustice. Every injustice will be dealt with at its appropriate time. I want to finish with this and look at three responses before the kingship of God. Herod had the same opportunity as the wise man. It said here, he told him, go find him, come back and tell me so that I can go worship him. There are three reactions that we see towards the news of the king being born. One was hostile, one was indifferent, and the other one was worshipful. Herod believed in this baby's birth. He believed it so much that he killed innocents in order to get rid of him. He believed it. The chief priests and scribes, it says that they looked at the word of God to figure out biblical knowledge, but they were indifferent about the birth. They both believed in the birth of the Messiah. What does this tell me? It tells me that you can believe in the birth of Jesus and still go to hell. You believe he was born, but do you believe he died to save sinners? You believe he came, but do you believe he's God in the flesh? Do you believe he's the only hope of sinful man? Or do you just believe that he is a threat to the achievements in your life, like Herod did? A threat to the lifestyle that you love to live, a lifestyle that I love to live. Let me ask you this, what is provoked in your heart at the question, where is the king? Where is the king in your life? Where is the king in my life? Does it make you want to worship or does it make you want to do anything to get rid of him and continue to rule and reign your own life? 
And maybe you don't feel hostility. Maybe you just feel a sense of indifference. Maybe you're totally fine with the biblical knowledge you get every single week. But there is no heart seeking after God's will in your life. I don't know the reasons for why you're here this morning. But God does. And maybe this is your first time in church. Maybe you've gone through some things in life, good or bad. Maybe you've achieved some amazing goals. Maybe right now there are reasons pouring into your head of why you don't think that you can move forward and declare Jesus as your king. I'm a murderer. I did something terrible. He died and he wants to have a relationship with you. I'm a drug addict. He died and wants to have a relationship with you. I've done unspeakable things. He's the Savior and he wants to have a relationship with you. That's the good news. Now I want to share the hard news. Because if he died a Savior for you, now you got to die to him. And if you accept him as Lord and not just Savior, you have to die to your will. You have to die to your way. You have to die to your agenda. You have to die to your desire. And because he is a king. See, we, we're used to having people maybe rule over us that we get to vote on, that we get to choose. Because it's easy to pick someone who does things that I like. But let me tell you something, Jesus is a king. He is not a presidential candidate. You don't just get to rewrite the Constitution to fit your lifestyle, your needs, your desires, and your agenda. He wants to be king. And when he rules and he reigns and you understand it, I can assure you, a heart of worship will come naturally. So I ask the same question the wise men asked. Where is he who has been born king? Where is the king in your plans for this year? Because if he is king, it ought to be evident by the way you respond to him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your son, Jesus. Lord, as we enter this new year, we don't want more of the same. We want a fresh movement of your spirit in our lives. And I do not know the difficulties that many have gone through. I don't know what difficulties they may be facing today. But I do know that you are sovereign, that you are in control of history. There is no detail that escapes your eyes. And Lord, it is that truth that carries us through the darkest moments. It is that truth that reveals who you are. So I pray, God, that you give eyes to your people. And I pray, oh Lord, that if there is an attitude of indifference, if we're totally happy with coming week in and week out and just getting biblical knowledge, but there is no true seeking of you, Lord, I pray that this routine may be broken. 
And that just like the wise men, we may seek you out, even if it takes us into the midst of sinful men. Even if it puts us face to face with men that have hostility towards you. You are still king. Father, teach us to make you our king. Teach us, God, to surrender our ways, our agenda, even our achievements, because your ways are better than mine. Father, thank you so much for your son. Give us a heart of true worship. Let it be the response to our King Jesus. In Jesus' his name we pray this. Amen.